Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for meeting us in this place at this time. And you don't meet us here because we've sanctified this room or because we've scheduled it appropriately or because you're bound to be here. Lord, you're here by your grace. And you make this gathering of your flock a special time, a unique time in which you move and work in our hearts. So Lord, do that without reserve this morning. Already we've sung your word. We've, we've encountered it through our joined voices. And now as we, uh, as we study your word, Lord, we come to feast. So let us eat to fullness this morning and know that you are God. My brothers and sisters here this morning, Lord, your children, your sheep, we need you. So we confess our weakness. Uh, we confess our great need. And Lord, we are glad to receive all you have for us this morning. So give us ears to hear and soften our hearts and draw us to you as we come to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. So... A number of years ago, I, I worked at a church with a friend named Jeff, and Jeff had just finished uh, his seminary education, and so our church had a little reception for him. And at the reception, there was a receiving line. It was Jeff and his wife and his kids, and then other members of his family had come to celebrate with him and the church. And so as I, I work the receiving line like everyone does, I get to Jeff, I give him a hug, I say, way to go, you big dummy, and all that, and, and go down and, and say hey to his wife and kids, and, and next in line is his mom. And so I say to his mother, congratulations, you must be so proud of your son, this is a really big deal. And his, and his mom said, oh, I'm not his mother, I'm his sister, And I said, ah! <laughs> oh, and here's what, what was the worst thing about it. I hadn't met this woman before. I knew this was his sister. My brain just short-circuited. I don't know what happened, but I could never look her in the eye again after that. An egregious mistake. A mistaken identity is a serious problem. You want to get people right, or there can be some serious ramifications. In our study of the Gospel of Mark so far... Time and again, the identity of Jesus comes up. It's a major issue. It's a significant theme in every chapter we've studied so far in Mark. And in a few chapters to come, the identity of Jesus. Who is he? That's the big thing. And this is a, a massive issue because everywhere people go, or everywhere Jesus goes, people get him wrong. They get his identity wrong time and time again. So far in our study of Mark, not one person has got Jesus right. Closest has been John the Baptist, but outside of that, everyone gets him wrong. In chapter one, when people are amazed at his teaching and his miracles, that's an identity issue. In chapter two, whenever he heals and forgives the man who is paralyzed and the Pharisees get mad at Jesus for speaking and acting on behalf of God, that's an identity issue. In chapter three, when his own family thinks that he has lost his mind, and when other Pharisees accuse him of being demon-possessed and in league with Satan, those are identity issues with Jesus. 
In chapter 4, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples. There's a massive storm, and he quiets the storm with just a few words. And do you remember the question his disciples ask after the storm quiets? They say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's an identity issue. Chapter 5, Jesus casts a legion of demons out of a possessed man. They go into the herd of pigs. The pigs run off into the sea. The local pig farmers union comes together and asks Jesus to leave the region. Why? It's an identity issue. Chapter 6, Jesus goes back to his hometown, Nazareth. And do you remember the reception he got from the hometown folk? Who do you think you are? big shot coming in here they reject his teachings they reject his miracles it's an identity issue and then last week if you were with us we saw a man named Herod Antipas he's the ruler over Jesus little corner of the world and when he's asked who do you think Jesus is he answers well he's obviously John the Baptist come back from the dead with powers to haunt me Everyone gets Jesus wrong. The persistent question is, who is Jesus? And the answer is important because it has potentially massive ramifications for us today. You see, if Jesus is an agent of Satan or a lunatic or a narcissist or a blasphemer, then we can just pack our things up and go home. We don't need to spend any more time with Jesus this morning if that's who he is. However... If, as we've seen in our study of Mark, Jesus is indeed God in the flesh, the conqueror of Satan in his schemes, the almighty God of creation, the authority over all things spiritual, the master of life and death, if that's who Jesus is, then we've got to respond appropriately. We cannot respond to these things just with a meh. We respond to God with us with all that we have. I wonder this morning if you get the identity of Jesus right. Or I wonder if you struggle to really know, to really believe, to really trust who he is. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it could be that you get the identity of Jesus wrong. When we get his identity wrong, we always think of Jesus lesser. We never think of him greater than what he is. We always think of him lesser. And there could be any number of reasons why you are not a follower of Jesus today. But one central reason is you get his identity wrong. You misunderstand who he is. You may know some facts. You may know some Bible stories. But at the end of the day, your rejection of him is a failure to see who he truly is. And if you're a Christian, you might say, I don't get his identity wrong. I'm a Christian. I come to church all the time. I read my Bible. I pray. Everything's good with me. But this story we're going to read today about Jesus feeding more than 5,000 people in this miraculous way, do you know who gets his identity wrong in this story? It's not the outsiders. It's disciples. Disciples are not exempt from getting the identity of Jesus wrong. And as much as we struggle with sin, and as much as we struggle with doubt, and fear, and worries, among so many other nefarious things, we get the identity of Jesus wrong. So this is good for all of us today, to dive into this passage, to see this miracle, and to be confronted with the reality of the identity of Jesus. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to give you a clear portrait of him. It's a clear portrait that I would hope would result in purer faith, greater trust, 
and ultimately rest for your soul. If you get the identity of Jesus wrong, you get all of life wrong. You get Jesus right, you get eternity right. So this passage gives us a three-part portrait of Jesus. This is a big-time miracle. And what we're going to do with this miracle is there are three Old Testament passages that are paralleled in this portrait of Jesus. So we're going to look at these three parts of this portrait of Jesus with an accompanying Old Testament parallel. And hopefully by the end of this, you see Jesus with greater clarity. You believe him with greater fervency. So I want you to follow along with me as I read. Mark chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Hit the pause button right there for just a second. Do you remember where the apostles have been? If you were to go back to verse 7 and 8 all the way through verse 13, Jesus has sent them out in pairs. He's given them authority and power and instructions and they're to go preach the gospel of God in the region around them. So now they've come back to Jesus. That's where we pick up at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. This miracle was especially important to the early church. And the key indicator of this is that other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this miracle is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. The church loved this story, and they they loved it because it gives particular insight into the person of Jesus. It serves almost as an epiphany into who Jesus is. Mark, his gospel is the shortest of the four gospels, but his account of this miracle is the longest in the four gospels. Mark loves this story because of what it tells us about Jesus. It answers the who is this question 
And you might be one struggling with the same question today. Let me show you this three-part portrait of Jesus. If you're taking notes, the first part of this portrait is this. Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep in verses 30 through 34. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember we talked about the odd arrangement of the stories in chapter 6. So put your eyes on the page with me. And just in case you're new with us today, let's make sure we're all on the same page with how all this ties together. So you'll remember we talked about how Jesus sends out the 12. So starting in verse 6, verse 7, he calls the 12 apostles to him. He sends them out two by two. He gives them authority and he gives them instructions. And then verses 12 and 13, they go out and preach and they drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And then verse 14 begins this account of John the Baptist's arrest and execution. That story ends in verse 29 and in verse 30 where we picked up today is the retelling of the apostles. They come back to Jesus and they're telling Jesus what they've seen and experienced on their trip. So remember last week we said if you were to take the the account of John the Baptist out of here and connect verse 13 to verse 30, you would have a seamless account. But my argument was that the reason the story of John the Baptist is placed right here in the middle of this mission is to bring about bold faith, courageous faith, as we carry out the work of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel and uh, working to help those who are hurt and broken. So the disciples come back to Jesus, and and I love this line. Uh, It says, they report to him all they had done and taught. I just, I imagine just an overflow of words coming out of the disciples. I I imagine them saying things like, you wouldn't believe this. I, I, there was a man who was possessed and I said in the name and authority of Jesus Christ and then the demon was gone and the man was healed or this person was sick and I healed them or this person whatever and I and then we taught and when we taught people came and they listened and it was and you know what Jesus we did what you said we didn't take any money we didn't pack any food we didn't take very many changes of clothes we just went and guess what we always had a place to sleep always had food to eat always had what we needed god took such good care of us on this trip i think that's the kind of report they come back with i think they would be in awe at how effective and how real the authority and power of jesus is that he gave to them and so jesus hears the stories takes it all in and i want you to pay close attention to how jesus cares for his disciples in this scene right in verse 30 he listens to them at the beginning of verse 31 he realizes they need something to eat and at the end of verse 31 he tries to take them to a quiet place so that they can rest people are all around and we see that every sunday in mark jesus is swarmed by people so jesus listens to his disciples he wants to get them some food and he wants to get them some rest. Jesus cares for his disciples in all these many different ways. I wonder, on this issue of rest, this is a gift from Jesus to his disciples. Are you a recipient of the rest that Jesus gives? And I'm talking rest in a very practical, day-by-day sense. I was talking to a pastor friend recently, and he was telling me how burned out he is. And burnout bad place to be for anybody and he talked about uh 
sort of what a dark place he had been in, and he was slowly beginning to work his way out through a, a number of strategies. And he said one of the unhealthy rhythms he had was that he would stay up late at night working and was getting very, very little sleep. And he said, I just was consumed by work. There's so much to be done, and I felt like, how can I sleep when I've got work that I have to do? But then he read in Psalm 121, verse 4, that God never slumbers nor sleeps. And that means that if God's awake, it's okay for you to go to sleep. When you sleep, you show your trust in the sovereign provision of God to care for you and to care for all of his creation. To care for the things that you have deemed important and you think will not survive without you. When you sleep, you show that you trust the Lord. Jesus gives us rest. And we need to receive that gift. Without apology, without guilt, yes, we should work hard. Absolutely, we should work hard. We should not be lazy. Laziness is not conducive to a person who follows Jesus. But neither is workaholism. We have to rest. And so, you should go to bed early tonight with a smile on your face and not feel bad about it. You should take a nap on a regular basis. You should turn off your stupid phone and black out for a number of hours where you don't answer the phone, you don't respond to text messages, you don't check email. Look, there's a reason God invented voicemail. And you should take advantage of that. And it's fine to giggle at. I think there's a serious problem there when we are enslaved to whoever is calling or whoever is texting or whatever notification pops up. We need to be masters of this technology, not be mastered by it. There's nothing wrong with the technology. There's something wrong with the user and the way we choose to use it. And I know some of you are in jobs and industries where it's a lot of hours every week. It's even more important than that you would put in place boundaries to protect yourself, your time, your rest. You should have days off every week. It's a spiritual matter. There's nothing courageous about working 80 hours a week nonstop if there's anything you can do about it. And even if the industry or the world around you says, you're taking a day off, what do you mean I can't reach you in the evening? Well, let them learn to live with disappointment. And you learn to live in rest and trust in the sovereignty of God. You need to receive the gift of rest from Jesus Christ. So Jesus attempts to get rest for his disciples in this story, but their attempt to get alone is a failure. They get in the boat, they sail along the shore, they're trying to get to another town down the way, but these Galileans are surprisingly fleet of foot. They scamper along the shore, and they beat Jesus and the disciples to the next town. And so when they get out of the boat, Jesus sees the crowd, and remember what he says to them in verse 34? He says, what's wrong with you people? Don't you have jobs? Don't you know that if we left you in the last town, we don't want to see your faces in this town? Otherwise, we would have just stayed in that town. Look, we are clocked out. We're not getting time and a half for this. We are done. So come back tomorrow and we'll try again. That's not what he said, is it? Look at verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is an important Old Testament 
phrase. It's not just a random choice by Mark to describe this scene with poetic language. It calls from Ezekiel chapter 34. If you're taking notes, write Ezekiel chapter 34. And I want you to read it later today. I want you to read the whole chapter and think about Jesus seeing his people as sheep without a shepherd. Here's what happens in Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel chapter 34, the prophet of God speaks. This is hundreds of years before Jesus is born. The prophet of God speaks, Ezekiel, and he eviscerates the wicked priests who have abandoned their responsibilities and abandoned their God. They have the dress, they have the title, they have the responsibility, but they do not walk in covenant loyalty with Yahweh. And as a result, they're not caring for their people. They are leading God's people into sin. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 5, says that without a shepherd, God's people are scattered and devoured by wild animals. Now that's poetic language but it's descriptive of the damage done to God's people when her leadership leaves the Lord, when her leadership rejects God. So when Jesus steps off the boat that day, he sees an Ezekiel 34 situation. Israel at this time has a lot of good things going for them. They have a temple. They have a priesthood. They have a capital city, Jerusalem. They have all these good things happening, but they don't have shepherds. The priesthood has rejected God. And as much as the priesthood rejects Jesus, they abandon their people and they abandon Yahweh as well. But Ezekiel 34 does not end with the failure of the shepherds. Ezekiel 34 ends with a promise from God to step in and rescue where his shepherds have failed. I want you to listen to what Ezekiel 34 verses 22 through 24 says. God speaks and he says, I will save my flock. They will no longer be prey and I will judge between one sheep and another. I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Question. By the time Ezekiel records these words, David is long dead. But the Lord speaks and he says, my servant David will shepherd the people. Who is the servant David spoken of in Ezekiel 34? Don't have to think long on this question. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah, the one in David's line who is to come who will succeed where everyone else has failed, who will protect, who will gather, who will nourish, who will take care of his sheep once and for all. And this is the same language Jesus uses of himself. Remember John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So in this scene, Mark chapter 6, Jesus, the good shepherd, is moved with compassion for his wayward sheep. Throughout Mark, we've seen incredible displays of Jesus' compassion on hurting people. He touches and heals the man sick with leprosy. He heals and forgives the paralyzed man. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He liberates people from demonic bondage. He healed the woman who had been sick for 12 years. And he raised 
the synagogue ruler's daughter from the dead. And do you remember what he said? He said, little lamb, get up. Compassion of Jesus is overwhelming in this passage and in all the others. So many people make this mistake. They think that Christianity is about keeping a set of rules. Here's the things you can't do, and here's the things you can do, and you have to do. But that's such a mistake. Christianity is fundamentally God acting in love to rescue people under the bondage of death. And he rescues people in this way. The good shepherd lays down his life. He doesn't just give him food on a hillside. He is the bread of life himself. He lays down his life to defeat death once and for all and to give life to his people. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And you've got to internalize this today, that Jesus loves you, he knows you, and he gave his life in order to give you life. Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. Here's the second part of this portrait of Jesus in this story. Jesus is the great provider. Jesus is the great provider who feeds his people. Jesus is the great provider who feeds his people, verses 35 through 37. So there's another picture of Jesus that emerges in this scene. Jesus is teaching the people. That's his response. He sees the crowd. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus responds by teaching. And he seems to lose track of time. His disciples tell him, hey, it's late. Send these people away so they can eat. I think this is a good move on behalf of the disciples. I think it's a positive move on their part. They seem to recognize the need of the people. And I think this is a reflection of Jesus' care for them. Just a little bit ago, Jesus was concerned that the disciples were hungry and needed rest. Now the disciples are concerned that the people are hungry, and so they come to Jesus and say, hey, let's send the people away so they can go get some food. I think that's a good thing. Gold star to the disciples on this one. How does Jesus respond to the disciples? Verse 37, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? And now we'll take back that gold star and hold on to it till another time. The disciples missed the point entirely. Remember, they just came off a mission in which they had exercised the authority of Jesus to teach, to heal, to cast out demons, and they went without money or luggage or food, and yet God provided. They always had a place to sleep. They always had food to eat. And in this scene, Jesus is challenging them to even greater faith and greater action. What should have happened is because of all they had seen and experienced with Jesus, in this moment, they should have said, Jesus, the people need something to eat. Can you do something about that? But they didn't. Now, there are some key words used in this story that take us back to another Old Testament story and shines light on this whole scene. In verse 35, we're told that they're in a remote place or they're in a wilderness. In verse 36, we're told that the people of God are hungry in the wilderness. So if you're familiar with your Old Testament a little bit, does that bring back any memories of any stories of old? Of course it does. It takes us back to Exodus chapter 16. And in Exodus chapter 16, here's what's happened. Moses has led Israel out of Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea, and they're not yet to Mount Sinai, and they find themselves in this barren land, and 
the people of Israel begin to complain. Did you bring us out of Egypt just so we can starve to death? It would be better for us to be slaves in Egypt than to be out here starving without any food. They saw God part the waters, bring them through, demolish the army, and yet they think they're going to starve to death. So in Exodus chapter 16, God speaks through his servant Moses. And listen to what God says. Exodus 16, starting in verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses. I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat. And in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That night, at twilight, they had meat to eat. The next morning they woke up, there was bread on the ground. And everyone ate till they were full. And God made sure his people were fed and watered and cared for. So there's an obvious parallel between Exodus 16 and this scene with Jesus and the hungry people in the wilderness on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So you might say, okay, here, I, I see the picture here. So the people that Jesus is feeding, they are like Israel in the wilderness. That's right. And you'd say, and so then Jesus is like Moses. No, that's wrong. You see, Moses did not have an answer to the hunger. Moses did not have the means to make bread. He didn't bring a food truck with him out of Egypt. He's got nothing, no power. He just has a word from the Lord. That's all Moses has. So in this story, Jesus is not like Moses. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God who provides the food, who feeds the people, who takes care of their need in this moment. Exodus 16, 12, God said, you will eat until you are full, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And in this scene, the people eat till they are full. And Jesus is saying something about himself. I am the Lord your God. And the stories of the God who fed his people in the wilderness and the God-man who fed his people in Galilee show us the necessity of God's people leaning on God's provision and also show the blessing of God's willingness to meet our need. If God doesn't meet your need, it will never be met. You will find no other source outside of our gracious God to take care of your needs. We are not creators. We are not sovereign. We are needy and finite. But God has always been a provider, and he remains so today. And isn't it encouraging to see how willing God is to meet our needs? He's always met the needs of his people. Always, always, always now is no less true than it was then. But I'm embarrassed to think of how many times Cody, in a moment of need and fear, has sat on a couch that the Lord provided in a room that God gave me, in a house that the Lord gave me, among a family that the Lord has given me, responding out of a salvation that God has given me and wondered, God, are you really going to meet my need? Such an embarrassing thing, and yet we do it over and over again. Everything you have comes from the Lord. And yet we wonder, is God going to take care of us? Isn't that what the disciples did here? Right? They stand before the one who quieted the storm with his words who casts out demons, who raises the dead, but they act as if bread and fish are beyond his skill set. 
Do you rely on God's provision? Do you trust the Lord to meet your need? Are you content in what the Lord gives you? Or do you live your life postured towards him with a shopping cart? God, give me, give me, give me. Trusting in the Lord for these things is a major sign of spiritual maturity. And it's a struggle for us to get there, but we must. The feeding miracle reminds us that spiritual success doesn't come through human effort or resources, but it comes through trust and dependence on the one who brings forth bread from the earth. So when we face difficulties and challenges, we should look beyond our circumstances and look to God and ask, Creator God, what are you going to do here? God, I've got this track record all the, all the way back to the Red Sea. You've provided for your people. And you're the same God today as you were then. Creator God, what are you going to do to see me through? To meet the need? To satisfy my soul? To glorify your name? God, I can't wait to see what you do in this moment. That's what we do when we understand Jesus is the great provider who feeds his sheep. He's the shepherd who cares, the provider who feeds. There's a third part to this portrait of Jesus in this story. Jesus is the victorious king. He's the victorious king who hosts the final banquet. I know that's a lot of words. You can shorten it if you want. Jesus is the victorious king who hosts the final banquet. In verses 39 through 44. So the disciples have failed the test. No gold star for these guys. Jesus takes charge. He has the disciples take an inventory of the food they have around. How many loaves, Jesus asks. They come back and say, we've got five loaves. Frisbee shaped, about an inch thick perhaps. We've got five loaves. Oh yeah, we found two fish as well. Okay, that's great. We've got five five loaves and two fish. And then Jesus has the people sit in groups. They sit in groups of Uh, of of certain numbers and and then uh, Mark gives us this detail and he says they're sitting in the green grass. I love that detail. They're sitting in the green grass. And then Jesus prays, he gives thanks and he begins to distribute the food through the disciples. Now there's no indication in the story that the people on that hillside understood how they were being fed. There's no word from them that says look what Jesus is doing. He took a little bit of food and now he's made a lot of food. We don't have any indication that they understand what's happening. As far as the story goes, the only people who know that this is a miracle are the disciples. Who come to Jesus, they get an armload of bread and fish, they walk with wide eyes, they deliver it, they come back, and they get more. And they do it over and over and over again. Mark tells us uh, 5,000 men were fed on this day. Some people will say the word men there is meant to be gender neutral, it just means 5,000 people. Others will say, no, that's not gender neutral. That means men. And so they didn't count the women and the children. Either way, it's an incredible miracle of Jesus Christ that he performs on this day. So the disciples distribute all the food. Everyone eats until they're full. And look, there's a simplicity to the miracle. Jesus doesn't make a big scene, doesn't do some magic dance or use magic words. All he does is just say a simple word of thanks and then he distributes the food. But isn't that how Jesus does all of his miracles? Whether he's quieting a storm, raising the dead, or casting out demons, it's simple. It's quiet. It is effective. 
When it's all done, Jesus tells the disciples, I love this scene, tells them, pick up the leftovers. They find at the end of it all, there's 12 baskets full of leftovers. Personally, I don't think there's anything significant about the number 12 in this story other than every one of those disciples is holding a basket of leftovers as a lesson of God's gracious provision. All we had were five loaves and two fish, but now each one of us gets a basket to look in and see all the things that Jesus has provided. This story, Jesus feeding his people, has an Old Testament parallel as well. In your notes, I want you to write down Isaiah chapter 25. I want you to go later today and I want you to sit down and after you've read Ezekiel 34 and Exodus 16, I want you to read Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, God's prophet Isaiah is speaking and he tells about the future salvation of God's people. Isaiah 25 sets our sights on that day in the future when God sets everything right once and for all. This is hundreds of years before Jesus is born, but even at this point, God's prophet, God's people have their eyes set on eternity. And I want you to listen to how that future day is described. In Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the people a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah 25 describes that final banquet. The enemies of God and his people have been destroyed forever. And God's people eat and drink without tears, without death, without disgrace. And we say, this is our God. This is our Lord who has saved us. On that Galilean hillside in Mark chapter 6, Jesus foreshadows that great feast to come. The people in attendance that day get a practice run for that great banquet when death is destroyed forever, and we see our Savior face to face, they and we are wayward sheep who at this final feast are gathered and given rest and safety and food and salvation, and Jesus is the victorious king who's destroyed death once and for all and prepared a feast for his people. He's the victorious king who hosts the final banquet, who's done the work to save us, to rescue us, and to give us rest and joy forevermore. Look, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he has saved us. That's what the church has seen on this hillside in Mark chapter 6. This is our God. So this story is more than just another miracle story. It's flooded with Old Testament imagery that speaks to the identity of Jesus. It answers the question, who 
is Jesus. It doesn't ask, who is Jesus to you? That's a nonsense question. Who is Jesus? He's the good shepherd who gathers his sheep and cares for them. That means in him alone we find protection and belonging. He's the great provider who meets his people's needs. That means in him we find provision and satisfaction. He's the victorious king who hosts the final banquet. That means in him we find eternal rest and peace. So I wonder, do you see Jesus with greater clarity than his disciples did? Mark lets us see their blindness, their failure, so that we wouldn't make the same mistake, so that we wouldn't walk along with eyes covered, ears deaf to the word in the glory of Jesus Christ. This same Jesus invites us to trust his mighty power and his abundant blessing. And when we trust in the mighty power and the abundant blessing of Jesus, he gives us a new song to sing. It's a song that combines imagery of the shepherd and the feast. And that song goes like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And let all God's people say, Amen. Let's pray together. Our great shepherd, our great provider, our banquet host, our Savior God, we praise your holy name this morning. We confess we think so little of you and so small of you Thank you for this epiphany today in which we see in Jesus Christ the one and the one alone who works salvation for us. And we need that, God. We need forgiveness. We need rest. We need relief. We need to be freed from fears about the future. We need you. God, I pray for friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. They've never trusted in you through faith, they may have trusted through morality, they may have trusted through religious deeds like baptism, communion, other things like that. But God, you tell us salvation is by faith and faith alone. So today, let them learn from the disciples. Let them see Jesus clearly. Put all their trust in you for their salvation. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith. Our faith is always in formation. My faith, always in formation. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Let us to think about your track record, which is blameless and perfect. You always care for your people. You always provide for your people. And let us put those lessons in place tomorrow. Let us rest. Let us trust your provision. 
Let us be content with what you've given us. Let us not fear the future knowing that our great banquet host has it all under control. Death destroyed. God seen and enjoyed. We look forward to that day. Thank you for being our shepherd and for us your sheep. Thank you for feeding us when we are hungry. Thank you for meeting our needs when we are needy. Thank you for so great a salvation as this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.